0: It's good to see you here this evening, and uh, I want to just throw this out, not make anybody do anything tonight, but I'm sure you have noticed that our Sunday evening crowd has thinned out a little bit, and so I would encourage you on Sunday nights when you come in to move a little bit towards the front. Uh, It'll make our singing better, and I know you want to be able to see me better. Uh, so, you know, move in a little bit and that'll, that'll help us out, uh, quite a bit. Also, I'm going to look at the clock periodically, uh, during the lesson tonight, although rarely on Sunday nights do I have the problem, uh, that I had, uh, had this morning, uh, just so you know, somebody asked me, somebody thought that somebody had signaled to me, uh, that it was time to quit. And I want to assure you that nobody signaled to me that it was time to quit, that I saw. Uh, They may have been signaling, and I just ignored it. But uh, anyway, uh, I apologize for the abruptness of uh, ending this morning. But when I looked up and saw that it was 11.30, and I looked at my notes, there was no easy way to end uh, where I was. So uh, we just ended. And we will pick it up again next week. So uh, good news is I don't have to worry about a sermon Sunday morning. Because I already got that kind of covered. So uh encourage you to come back for that. Uh, in the, the Jew, for the Jewish people, there are really three leaders that stand above heroes, if you want to call them that, that stand above all the others. There was Abraham... There was Moses, and there was David. Now there were others that were important. there were others that you know were significant but but really, it is those three. If the Jews had Mount Rushmore, it would be Abraham, Moses, and David. And I don't even think there'd be a fourth. Because it's Abraham, Moses, and David, and then everybody else is way down here. Maybe Elijah or Elisha or you know Solomon, or I don't know who you put down there. But they'd be way behind those three. And so starting tonight, I wanted to, for a few weeks, just kind of look at the life of Moses. Moses was an important person in the Jewish history. He was a, a bridge between... Times, as it were, and he was also, I think, a very purposeful model or type or foreshadowing of what was to come with Jesus. And so want us to think about this, and if you have your Bibles, we 're going to start off in Exodus chapter one. Well actually no, don't start there, but we 'll get there eventually. But in order to understand what's going on with Moses in Exodus chapter one, we have to backtrack a little bit, but we're not going to backtrack much because you already know that. And you remember that God calls Abram when he is in the Ur of the Chaldeans and he says, Abram, I want you to leave your family and I want you to just journey to a land that I'm going to tell you about. And so Abraham gets to this land. Abraham, Abram, And God says to Abraham, I'm going to promise you three things. I won't quiz the kids. We went over this a million times, but I won't quiz them. I won't put them on the spot. But he says, first of all, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Okay? Secondly, I'm going to give you the land in which you are living right now. And thirdly, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you, wow, those are some amazing promises, aren't they? You are going to be made into a great nation. He says later on that's in chapter 12 and chapter 15 of Genesis. he says, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand the you know grains of sand on the shore, the beach, not the sea the well, you know what I'm talking about. and so your nation's going to be great. And if we remember when God made that promise to Abraham, there was a slight problem with that. And the problem was Abraham had no children. And Abraham was already getting up there in age. When God makes the promise again to Abraham, it's in chapter 15. Where Abraham and Sarah had decided they were tired of waiting on God. And so they were going to take matters into their own hand. And so they concoct this deal with Hagar. And then Ishmael was born and everything. And God says, no, no, no. This isn't the son of promise. There's going to be a son of promise. And through that son, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So that was a problem. The problem with the second promise was. Abraham was a foreigner in the land in which he was living. And I imagine when God says to Abraham, your descendants are going to possess all this land. Number one, I don't have any descendants. Number two, I'm just a foreigner here. How on earth are my descendants or am I going to possess all this land? And then there was a problem with the third promise. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. And the problem with that problem, promise was, it was ambiguous. What What do you mean? What What are you trying to say? Okay, I'm going to have a million descendants. Okay, I get that. I don't understand it, but I get what you're saying. Okay, my people are going to possess this land. Okay, I understand what you're saying. I don't see how it's going to happen. But all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. What does that even mean? So God gives Abraham these three promises. And Abraham really not understanding any of the three. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, uh, beginning in verse 12. Whoa, I had it. Yeah. Yeah. It says as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. This is after he'd already made the promise that they're going to own the land that they're in right now. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God tells Abraham, some of these promises, well, actually, none of these promises are you going to actually see realized? It's going to happen, but you're going to be long gone. And so we get to the end of Genesis, and we remember we have Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and Joseph is sold by his down into egypt and then did the famine and all of that and eventually joseph has jacob and all his brothers brought to egypt and they settle in the land of goshen and joseph has become second in command of pharaoh and you know they are egypt is prospering because of jacob and because of the israelites and everything is hunky-dory it's just going great it is a match made in heaven the egyptians and the israelites and then you turn to exodus chapter one Now, the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. And Joseph was already in Egypt. So we got 70 people. Now, Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and greatly multiplied and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Now, if we don't know any better, but we do, because I know you do. But if we don't know any better, we go to the end of Genesis. And we read these first few verses in Exodus. And it appears this has happened in a relatively short period of time. Joseph and his brothers and their family is in Egypt in the land of Goshen. Everything's going along fine. And then all of them, you know, Joseph and his brothers die. And, you know, there's a new generation. Well, that sounds like it may be, you know, a couple of decades or so. It's 430 years. There is a 430 year gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. That was a little interesting to me. I wanted to put that into a little perspective for us. We in America, we don't have the same perspective of age and time as a lot of the other places in the world. Europe and Asia, where their cultures have been going on for hundreds and thousands of years. You know, we are even though we may be the greatest country in the world and the most modern and whatever, we are still a baby. When it comes to our civilization, as it were, as it comes to our nationality. I remember when we were living, and I've told some of you this, when my parents were living in England, and we went over there. My parents lived in the new part of town. Their house was built in the 1830s. That was the new part of town. We have a house in America that was built in the 1830s. It is a historical monument. You know, we put a plaque outside and, yeah, you know, oh, ah, that's just part of the new neighborhood back there in the 1800s. And so we're talking about all that is going on here in this, in this time. Do you realize two, 430 years from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. The Jamestown Colony, the first permanent colony in the New World, in America, was 1607. That is 413 years. The Jews were in Egypt longer than America has even been settled as far as that is. 430 years. Not only that, but those 70 people have now grown to an estimated, there's, there, there, there's no census or whatever, between one to two million people. Even if you go with the low number, from 70 To a million. This is no longer a clan. This is no longer a family. This is no longer a tribe. This is now a full-fledged nation. Of people. A million strong. And the Egyptians are a little worried about that. In verse 8. The new king Who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them, oppressed them with forced labor, and they put and they built Python and Ramsey to store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar. With all kinds of work in the fields, in all their hard labor, the Egyptian used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua. We're going to go with that. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Girls, we talked about how that is normally not, you know, here's a time in the Bible in the Old Testament when it was a benefit to be a girl. Okay? Doesn't happen often, but here it is. Then the uh, king of, the Egypt, of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them... Oh, no, where we go? Oh, 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them and let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked him, Why have you, not, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian... I just love this. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Oh, we don't. We, by the time we get there, they've already given birth. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people: every boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every let every girl live. So the story of the deliverance here. Why did God take 430 years before this deliverance process began? Why did God take 430 years to begin to make good on the promises that he had made to Abraham? Well, I think it was to prepare Israel as a nation... I think it was to prepare the enemies that were in the land. Remember in Genesis 15, it said the sins of the Amorites was not yet full. I don't know exactly what all that means, but he wasn't quite ready to punish them yet, you know. And I think also to prepare the story of deliverance that would closely mimic our story of deliverance. You see, in the time of Jesus... The Jews were waiting on the Messiah. They were waiting on a deliverer. And they wanted somebody like Moses. They wanted somebody who was going to come and who was going to rescue them from evil Rome. And all the Roman, you know, hardships that, 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 that Rome was causing on them. And so they were looking for a deliverer like Moses. And in many ways, Jesus is a deliverer like Moses. But in other ways, he's not. You see, even the Israelites a little later on, they're not going to understand what Moses is all about. They're going to be confused by all of it. They're not going to like some of what goes on as they're wandering in the wilderness and things like that. Just like the Jews did not understand the deliverance that Jesus was bringing to the people. Now, when we look at Moses' life, Moses' life is, is very easy to study because it's, it's broken down into three 40-year periods. That's pretty, as a math person, I like that. That's, that's pretty easy. He spends 40 years in Egypt. He spends 40 years in Midian. And then he spends 40 years leading the Israelites out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, as we know. So, first of all, what we see from uh, this is that a deliverer was needed. Four and thirty years, from 70 to, two to 1 to 2 million people, a new Pharaoh was on the throne who knew nothing of Joseph's service to Egypt. And the Israelites appeared to be a threat... To the Egyptians. Yet, there is nothing in either biblical history or even Egyptian history that says that the Israelites were ever anything more than a blessing to the Egyptians. And the Pharaoh comes along and makes these manufactured fears for his people oh we can't trust those israelites they've gotten so big and you know they're liable to turn against us they're liable when our enemies come instead of fight for us they're going to fight for our enemies or he said and i thought this was interesting they're going to leave well if you're so scared of them if you're so worried about them what's the problem with them leaving There's all their cheap labor. There's all their free labor that may take off. And so Pharaoh manufactured this fear. We live in a world today of manufactured fear about Christianity. Christianity ought not be, if we're living right and doing what God wants us to do, Christianity should be nothing but a blessing. To the people around us. We ought to be a light. In our communities. And in our schools. And in our homes. And in our jobs. And all those different places. We ought to be bringing a message of peace and joy. To the world around us. And yet there is all this manufactured fear out there. The enemies of God who want to whip everybody up into some kind of frenzy and say, oh, these people are filled with hate and these people are bigoted and these people are this and these people are that, when that is not at all what Christianity is about. So Pharaoh attempted to control the Israelite population, first by hard labor, thought it would lower life expectancy, you know. Uh, I can't remember the statistics. I read it somewhere once. But the number of men who died during the construction of the Empire State Building is astounding. Have you ever seen the pictures or the video of the construction of the Empire State Building? OSHA would have a heart attack. Those guys are walking along those beams a hundred stories up in the air, however tall, you know, with no safety rope. They're sitting there on this little ledge eating lunch. You've seen it. They're sitting there with their lunch pail here and their feet are dangling off and their hiney's halfway dangling off the other way because it's just a thin little rail that they're sitting on 90 or 900 feet up in the air and they're just eating lunch. Now you know me. I'd starve before I took a job doing that. I mean, that's just... I'll work on the first floor, okay? Y'all can handle everything from there on up. But the number of people who died in the construction of the Empire State Building is pretty phenomenal. Same is true with uh, uh, Hoover Dam. Boy, Chuck, you you know, I'm scared. (laughs) I don't know about you. But yeah, the number of people who died building the... So Pharaoh thinks, if I can get these people and make them work harder and in dangerous situations, then that's going to thin out the population. But no, they started having more kids. Wonder who had a hand in that. Think maybe God had a hand in that. And so Pharaoh comes along and says, okay, it's not working. What we're going to do is, is I'm going to, you know, plot with the midwives... So that when they're born, and you know, I'm I'm not getting into all of that. But you know, when they're born, if it's a a boy, I guess for a midwife, it wouldn't take much to kind of choke it out. And say, oh, you know, it was stillborn. But let the girls live. Well, the midwives, they didn't want any part of that. You know, killing, you know, babies. So they didn't do that. And so the population is continuing to grow. And eventually, Pharaoh says, we're going to kill all the boys at birth. All the boys would be thrown into the Nile River. It reminds us, does it not, of the time of Jesus' birth. When Herod, in order to kill the, quote, king he had heard about, had all the boys around Bethlehem killed. It's amazing what extent people will go to To go against God. Whether it's Pharaoh or whether it's Herod. So secondly we see. So the deliverer is needed. Secondly we see that the deliverer is born. Chapter 2. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she begat, became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child. She hid him for three months. I wonder what would happen if he wasn't a fine child. But anyway. When she saw that he was a fine child. She hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him. She got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking among the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. She was crying. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. So this is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby, nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of water. So Amram and Jochebed have this baby. Moses is the youngest of three. Okay. We know that Miriam is older because she's the one that's in the reeds making sure what's going on. We find out later in chapter seven that Aaron is three years older than Moses. So he's the youngest of the three, at least at this point. And his mother and his father hide Moses in the, uh, in the reeds. Found by Pharaoh's daughter. And, you know, again, you know, there was no, there was no, uh, formula back then. You know, there was no Similac or was it Pablum back in the day? Was that a thing way back then? Was that? A, I don't know. I heard that once. That may be dog food for all I know. But anyway, okay. But Similac, I know that because that's what our kids got. And there was none of that back then. So, you know, breast milk was what you fed your babies. And there would be mothers who, for whatever reason, couldn't physically maybe. And so they would have these wet nurses who would feed other people's babies. Well, obviously, Pharaoh's daughter had not had a child, so she was in no position to feed the baby. And so Moses' sister comes along and says, you know what? Do you want me to find one of the Hebrew women who can nurse and feed the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, sounds like a good idea. And she said, I got just the person. And it turns out it's Moses' mother. Now, I'd always thought when I was a kid and I heard this story, I'd in my mind, because probably they didn't tell us everything. You know, they kept details from us. Uh, I always got the idea that, that Moses' mother came to the palace and fed Moses. No. It says that Moses' mother took Moses and kept him with her. Until he was weaned. And then took him back to the palace. To become Pharaoh's daughter's son. I think that's very important because two things. One, they would have nursed way longer than what we do. Which means that Moses would have been under the influence... Of his mother and father to a point in time where he was old enough to be aware of a little of what was going on. He would have been old enough to be aware that these were Israelites. He would have become aware of the Israelite customs and things like that. He was being versed in the Hebrew way of life before he was ever turned over to Pharaoh's daughter. And so the deliverer is born. In chapter two, in verse 11 through 15, we see an incident in Moses' life. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, meaning the Israelites, and he watched them at hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew with one of his, one of his own people, glancing this way and that way and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me just like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Moses had this moment of consciousness. Moses had this moment where he had to decide. And I am I a Hebrew? Or am I an Egyptian? He sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew. Now this, you know, Moses is 40 years old by now. Okay, this is the end of his 40 years in, in Egypt. Moses is 40 years. So he has been under Egyptian thought and Process and and culture and all those environment for, let's just say he was four when he was weaned, okay? I'm just throwing that out there. Could have been less, could have been more. I don't know. But for well over 30 years, he's been under Egyptian influence. But something about that time he had spent with his mother, he knew he was Hebrew. And he saw an injustice being done and he had to make a choice. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about hating or not loving this world. And there are going to be times in our lives where we have to make a choice. Are we going to follow God? Are we going to live the Christian life? Or are we going to love the world? And are we going to follow the world? And we need to have that same kind of commitment that Moses had. And so just a little after that, verse 15. So not only uh, the deliverer is born. Yeah, we're down to the next one. Yeah, we're down to the next one too. Yeah, he flees and then he is uh, prepared. When Moses heard of this, he tried when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water, fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along, drove them away. But Moses got up, came to their rescue and watered their flock. Now, see, Moses does have kind of a a characteristic of helping the underdog. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. And he even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. See, if you're a father with seven daughters and there's a single man roaming around, uh, you want to hook up with him. Okay, so that, you know, maybe you can pawn one of them daughters off one less mouth to feed. All right. So anyway, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. One down six to go. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become an alien in this foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry to help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So Moses flees. He goes to Midian. He gets married. He has a family. And he basically is a nobody for 40 years. He's off tending his flocks, goes up on the hill with his sheep and his goats, comes home, you know, has dinner, goes back to the flock. He's a nobody in this land. And I'm sure Moses is pretty well convinced at this point that this is my life. This is pretty well the way it's going to be all my life. This is pretty well what I am destined for. Wow. Wow. Is he in for a rude awakening? What he does not realize is that while he's just been living his life, God has been preparing him. This 40 years in Midian was not an accident. An oversight on God's part. I think that some of the lessons he learned being a shepherd was going to help him lead the people. These 40 years away from his people were going to help them out of Egypt. We never know what God is preparing us for. I'm going to close with this little story. Some of you I've told this to. But when I came home from a and and was not going back, I was 19 years old and was going to church where my parents, you know, were going to church, a big church in Dallas. And the guy who taught the junior high class came to me and said, would you help me teach the junior high class? And I said, sure. I'm thinking, You know, he's old, younger than I am now, but that was my thought then. He's old and I'm just going to be in there to kind of, you know, as a monitor, you know, keep the kids in their seats, you know, that kind of thing and whatever. And so he taught the first class. And he gives me the teacher's manual. And he says, why don't you teach next week? Now, up to that point, I had never done anything in that congregation that would have given anybody the idea that one, I wanted to or two, that I could do such a thing. So I don't know where he got this idea. But he said, next week, could you teach the class? I said, okay. Okay. So I spent all week looking at the teacher's manual and doing all this and, you know, ad-libbing, as you can imagine, you know, different things. and A story here, a story there. Shocked, I'm sure. And so I come in and I teach class. That's the last time I saw that man. He never came back to class. And from that moment on, I was at 19 years old, the junior high teacher. Now, I would have never, ever suspected that maybe God was preparing me. Maybe God had a plan for me. Maybe He was saying, yeah, today it's teaching the junior high class for a quarter. But guess what it's going to be in about four years? you're going to be a youth minister. (laughs) I'd have been like Moses when we're going to see next year at the burning bush. I'd have come up with every excuse under the sun not to do it. Sometimes God is preparing us when we don't even realize it. For ministries and purposes that we can never imagine. God's vision is way bigger content being a shepherd in Midian. But next week, God's going to wake him up. If you're here this evening in some way, we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.
1: We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings, at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.